1: Hi, this is David Ossola and you're listening to Whatever (laughs) Nevermind.
0: Welcome to Whatever Nevermind, people, a Cobras and Fire endorsed Sidecast. My name is Baco, of course. I just want to give you a little heads up here. We have a special interview, kind of a bonus to this week's Alice in Chains facelift uh, episode. David DeSola is the author of Alice in Chains, The Untold Story. It's one of the only books out there you can find that is this detailed and gives you all kind of the backstory of Alice in Chains. It kind of gives you some of the dirt, no pun intended, without being too, I don't know, nefarious at the same time. It's a very, very fun read if you're a fan of rock biographies as I am. We talk all about the facelift era stuff, and of course we get into Dirt, which is a record coming up further down the list. So I'm going to split the interview up into two parts. Today you're going to hear us talk mainly about the era surrounding facelift Left further on down the list when we eventually get to the dirt record, I'll share the other the other half, which you'll enjoy just as much as this one, if not more. But both halves of the conversation are a really fun chat. Dave was a great guy, gave us a lot of time, and like I said, if you're a fan of rock biographies, this is one of the best about a band that doesn't have a lot written about them. So if you're an Allison Chains fan and you like rock biographies, you should probably go out and get this right now if you haven't already. Enjoy. Welcome to the program, uh, David Asola, author of the Allison Chains: The Untold Story. This book's been out a while, and it's basically available everywhere. David, uh, thank you for your time, and welcome to the program.
1: Thanks for having me
0: on. Tell me a little bit about yourself, as far as like you, you don't have a whole lot of rock biographies in, in your, your resume here. How did you end up coming to do, to be the author for this book? I guess we'll we'll start there.
1: Uh, I was. Basically, in the, was the summer between first and second year grad school at Georgetown, uh, I had a summer job of 60 minutes, and I was doing I was doing class two nights a week. So basically, I had a lot of homework. That's what I'm trying to get at here. So one of those nights where I'm you know up late reading whatever, uh, I I put on the dirt on for the first time in like years probably, and it kind of just so I rediscovered it. Basically. It was kind of like wow right? Sure. And so I listened to it, you know, all the way through, start to finish. And when, uh, when it was over, I was like, well, you know, 2011, you know, Wayne's been dead for a while now, you know, somebody must have written a book on him or something. So I go on Google, I go on Amazon, I go on all the usual sources and I find nothing along the lines of what I was looking for. So at that point I had the utterly insane idea of doing it myself. Uh, on top of uh, you know, on top of having a you know, besides having a, a, a day job and, and summer school, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so I finished up, so I finished the summer term, you know, be in summer. My summer gave me 15 minutes, uh, finish my classes, and then I had about three or four weeks off before I started the fall term. So at that point, I did my first trip to Seattle, I did my first round of interviews and did research, and then I was like, okay, well make us do this book and see what happens. And so, you know, I juggled the book in grad school for pretty much the entire, my entire second year. I finished school and then I did the book full time and, you know, there you go. That's it. But basically, uh, long story short, to answer your question, I was looking for a book that didn't exist and then I decided to do it myself.
0: So this is very much a passion project for you then?
2: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: A passion project, the uh, challenge. Uh, okay, you know, I, it was the right place at the right time. You know, I had the skill set, I had the motivation, uh, I had the time, I had the resources, thankfully, um, and just all these sort of things going on in my life at the same time, and it all just sort of it was all just sort of happened to work in my favor, and I was like, okay. I'm going to do this.
0: <laughs> Break that down, because I love getting to kind of the, the more nerdy, kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. When you say the resources, what do you mean?
1: Well, well, uh, free time, obviously. I mean, I was doing school, and I was doing this. So, I mean, it was a lot of, you know, I had office space. I had, you know, time, and it's okay. like, you know, I was doing one, I was doing the other. Um, there was a lot of, uh, I did a lot of records requests. I don't know if you noticed the footnotes. Uh, those took time and money. Uh, so it's like, you know, one thing you learn in any investigative reporting project is if you need any documents requests, any public records requests, get those things in early because they can take, they can, they can take you a few days, they can take you a few months. So ultimately, you know, over the three years I was working on this project, I came up with something like 15 by like 14 or 15 binders uh worth of documents, and you know they they will they'll, they'll take up quite a bit of shelf space let's put it that way <laughs> um and uh so yeah, on top of that, you know I had a you know technology was there, you know digital recordings to, to do my to do my interviews um you know I was finding people through social networks through networking like just as the more I met sources, the more I got more names. Uh, from people through social networks, I found people through the internet, you know, through, you know, whatever. Um, I did, you know, in a perfect world, I would have moved to Seattle to do this book. I couldn't do that, but I did fit like, I did, I think like five trips total in three years. Hmm. Um, and I was there for like, you know, a week, a week or so at a time. So it was like, you know, when I was in on the ground in Seattle, I would, me do or see or get while I was physically there because it's like I could get an interview on the ground while I was there. It was like, great, let's do it over the phone. You know, worst case scenario, I uh, can always do that. So it was, um, like I said, it was, you know, time, motivation, um, uh, energy, resources, eco, <laughs> all yeah. those things were, were came into the mix.
0: So you had no like advanced budget to, to do this with? This is really just all on your own dime.
1: I did it on my own dime, um, and then uh, I was, uh, I did a uh, one thing I, uh, you know, of course, I'd never written a book before, so I made the very silly mistake of trying to shop around the book without really knowing what I had at the very beginning, and not surprisingly, I didn't get very many encouraging responses, so I was like, fine, let's, I was going to, so then I just decided, okay, well, I'm going to write this thing first and shop it around when it's done or close to being finished. Um so I worked on it after that point, after about two years of working on it. I interviewed one of my sources and and the source after, after the interview the source asked me if if I had a publisher. And I said, No, I was gonna write and uh I was gonna write it and then shop it around. And she's like, Well, you know, talk to my talk to my uh talk to my literary agents, you might be interested in this. And I said, Okay, sure. And, you know, long story short, you know, uh this person had to pass but he referred me to one of his colleagues who became later became my agent and uh <laughs> you know he, he, he liked he liked the piece and he shopped it around and you know within a month of, within a month or so of shopping around he had an offer. So um it was like okay at that point I signed the contract I'm like, Oh crap, it's real, you know I like, mean yeah. I got twelve months to turn this thing in. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, so it was one of those things where it was just very sort of fortuitous I was prepared to go self-publishing around if, if necessary but ultimately I didn't have to cool um so so it was uh, uh, you know I, I, like I said one of the one of the least one of the many resources i was referring to in my early responses was uh the type of time it was it was money I was able to self fund this thing uh the entire the entire thing that I could do I could spend as much or as little as I wanted depending on on what the you know, which wasn't thing. Like, I, I booked a, a month's stay at the, you know, at the W Hotel in downtown Seattle. But, I mean, if I needed, you know, one, one, one a big expense that I think ultimately saved me a lot of time in the end was hire, hiring a transcription service to, to, to log all the interviews. Because if you do a one-hour interview, it takes you an hour just to look at it. You know, in my experience, it takes you double that to transcribe it, to do a really good transcription. The longest... A uh, set of interviews, combined set of interviews I did with one subject was Jim Elmer, Wayne's stepfather. Okay, and he clocked in at about in multiple sessions. He clocked in at about five and a half hours. So, <laughs> it, it, do them do that now, but right? it, it takes me about you know five and a half hours. It takes me about eleven hours just to transcribe that. No, thank you. I you know hired, hired transcription service to do it for me and. You know, it saved me a lot of time. <laughs> Even though it did drive up my budget, but it was it was it was, a, it, was a, it was a it was a worthwhile expense in the, in the end. So otherwise I'd probably still be writing
0: it. Well you don't have to tell me about transcribing interviews, but yeah, that's an awful lot.
1: I mean I did I did that for years in my career, you know, at minutes, whatever. I mean, it's one of the most thankless parts of journalism, you know, whether it's like a five minute interview or like a one hour in-depth into, like, a documentary or something. So, yeah, it's not fun.
0: Uh, and I should mention, uh, I the, the I, I think the book is killer, uh, and you're Thank not you. wrong that there wasn't shit for Alison Chain's books out there. Uh, the only one I can I can th- remember because I you know I, I am a fan, I am uh, of both books and Alison Chains. You know, so this was really pretty much catered to to a guy like myself. But there was a book about Mike Starr, but I it, it was so poorly it written, was, it was
1: it was terrible. Yeah, I got, I, I I got a, it's out of French.
2: Of
0: course. Uh,
1: I got a copy of it on Amazon for like 80 bucks. I'm not proud of it, but I had to. Oh, well, part of your research. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it, it, it wasn't that great. I mean. It's
0: like a ninth grader who headed the Mike Starr fan club wrote it.
1: Well, he was a, he's a, he's a you know journalist. And uh, the problem is it was, he was a, a fanboy. He got paid to write this book. And, yeah. And then he went to a venue uh like what they went to the self publishing route. Um and then unfortunately, you know, I, I I don't you know, I'm not gonna question the guy's ethics though, I wasn't gonna speak to him, but uh, you know, Mike Starr let's just say he wasn't the most reliable narrator. So I think he just <laughs> sort of took everything Mike Starr told him in whatever state of <laughs> it's issue, kind of you shocking of because advantage. typically
0: uh, uh, heroin uh, junkies are, are pretty honest with me.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, now that we're on the subject, I'll say this: you know, uh, Mike Starr, Blaine, Demery, all anybody who is uh, who was uh you know anybody who was uh, who had some who had their issues with, uh, with that drug, they sent me down multiple rabbit holes over the years. Let's put it that way. So oh. that's what I learned. You know, the old, you know, trust to verify, but for junkies, you know what I mean? So it was, you know, trying to get it, but it's like sometimes, you know, I don't know. It's it's almost like mathematical certainty that, you know, junkies lie, you know what I mean? And I, I learned that the hard way. I'd spent like, you know, days or a week or however long it was trying to, to find a lead and I just couldn't check it out. On the other hand, some of them did. So it was just one of those things where there was no absolute rule. Mm-hmm. But if after a while I couldn't find somebody or anything to that would sort of corroborate it, I I could I I, I wouldn't you know, do it. Like here's one that was true.
2: Yeah.
1: Um Mike Starr told me told a friend of his that I interviewed uh, about a story that he was give in Brazil on that last tour with the band before he got fired. He uh I guess he got withdrawal or something that he in a helicopter and opened a door and he threw up outside of a helicopter and did flight. Um and so he told me he told his friends and I'm like, that sounds a little far fetched, but I'm like, okay, fine. One of my key sources was Mike Spaketech, you okay. know, who was there for pretty much from like eighty from like ninety to ninety six. So from the first Alice tour for Faceless to Unplugged. That was his last show. So he was there for the whole heyday of the band that, that classic early period, right? And he stayed on after Mike started laughing. So I asked him about this, because he was in Brazil for that tour, and I was like, oh yeah, that happened. I was there, I was there, I was there, I caught the with All right. So, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, some of it is, you know, you probably take it to be true, and some of it actually checks out. And, you know, there's no iron rule for it. You just gotta, you know, you just gotta try and check it, and... uh You know, hope for the best. And sometimes you have to cut your losses, even if you spent, you know, days or weeks, you know, trying to run run something down.
0: That is one of the things about the book I like a lot, though. I think you do an excellent job of separating um, verified fact from things that are probably true but you know you, you you make it sure that you you do a really good job of uh without kind of without boring people but you, you you do a good job of like well this is to the best of this person's recollection that kind of stuff it adds a real believable um nature to the whole everything you're reading you know what I mean
1: yeah well it's also I mean if you were writing the intro the introduction I wrote to the book one thing I've noticed is that like you know it's like 20 or 30 years later when I was writing this. A lot of the people were dead. Uh, a lot of the people at the time were already dead. Um, so, obviously they couldn't speak for themselves. And, you know, with the passage of time, you know, people, you know, getting messed up on drugs and alcohol or people having falling out or whatever, you know, even memory just becomes a very curious thing. I and mean, you can you convince yourself that something is true. You may misremember it. I don't know. One of the more interesting exercises other than that was the... Uh, the story of Wayne's last recording session with Allison and Chainz in nineteen ninety eight, uh, when they all met up in a studio in LA with the Jordan his crew. Now I had something like five or six people, five or six sources in that room. So it's all George people and um uh, and uh trying to remember who it was. yeah, I think it was all it was all Jordan's people. And uh Sean Sean's drum tech. And uh you know it's it's and I asked him, you know, what the Wayne Showed up super late, right? Because at that point, he'd, his drug use had more or less warped his perception of time. Uh, so, I mean, he, to him, he's on time, and but to other people, he's hours or day, or days late, you know. So, anyway, I, you know, I ask people, you know, they also are waiting for Lenny to show up, and like, I asked like five or six different people that question, and I got five or six different times. It's very, <laughs> you know. Somebody says like, "Oh, showed up at five, Showed up at eleven. Showed up at three. Showed up, mm. up at three in the morning. Showed up at like, you know. I was like, dude, I can't even freaking tell anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they were all there. You know, just kind of, just, just kind of make it more mind-boggling. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was just one of those things where I just sort of like, well, I just know not sources had. Varying accounts as what time you showed up,
2: <laughs> but
1: yeah. So that's uh, and uh, so I mean, it's like I said. Ultimately, I don't think people are deliberately lying to me. I think that's how they remember it, or at least that's what they think they remember. Sure. Um, you know, in my in my case, a lot of I was obviously operating with the benefit of hindsight. Um, I was obviously operating with. Uh, you know, the knowledge of other people in some cases, like I'd already interviewed them or I'd already researched the subject or I'd already gone through archives, like newspaper clippings or magazine clippings or whatever. So I could cross-reference, you know, dates with events and whatever. So, um, you know, I had, I had to sort of try referee everything, basically. I had to make sure, you know, what the order and timing and things of events was and, you know, it, it's it's complicated, and it can be incredibly frustrating. But, you know, I mean, like I said, it's it's just because things don't check out or there's some ambiguity or confusion or contradiction there, I don't think it necessarily means that people were lying to me. I, or I just think it's, you know, it's just human nature that, you know, people forget or they misremember things as, as they get older.
0: Let, let me take you back a little bit. Uh, how old would you have been then, like, when— Oh, Facelift or, or Dirt came out. Like, did you get into Alice in Chains right away? Were you into grunge, that kind of stuff? What's your background with the music? Okay,
1: so Facelift dropped in August of 1990. At that point, I would have been 11. Um, I was living uh-huh. in, I was yeah, I was living in Europe at the time. I was living in Holland. And at the time, uh, you know, we my sort of main musical sort of influence and sort of, source of everything was was uh, the European version of MTV, which is basically very similar to the American version, just with British sensibilities with British hosts and sort of tailored to British European audiences like that. Like some like European bands and, and British bands and things that were, were big over there at the time that didn't get the time of day in the States and vice versa. So that so you know, I discovered, you know, you know, one show I discovered fairly early on was like 120 minutes. which used to be on at like Sunday night at like midnight. And, you know, you yeah, have school on Monday morning, right? But I would sneak out of bed and go watch, you know, go watch it for a little while. And I just, a lot of the fans i still listened to today from that period. So, uh, how did I discover Alice in the so, I, re- I don't remember, I don't remember the brouhaha over Facebook for some reason. I'm not saying I didn't hear it. I'm just saying I just don't remember it. I do remember when Nirvana. You were eleven. Come was. on. both. <laughs> they both, Well, I do remember the Bruhaha when Nirvana and Pearl because we yeah, both. Okay. Never, Never mind. Ten came out about a month apart. If I remember yeah, correctly.
0: Yep.
1: And that was like a year later. And uh and that um, those albums, everybody was listening to it. You know what I mean? So and then oh, Junk came out like shortly after. Um So as far as how it was, Alice and James, it would have been either. You know, you know, Hard 20 Minutes or Headbangers Ball or Abuse and Butthead, like one of those shows, you know, <laughs> I discovered Allison James back, back in the day. So,
0: okay. Well, um, you know, we going back uh, even a little bit more because you touch on it in the book, you know, because they came out about a year before everything broke with Grunge and that record really didn't hit. And now, when when they were first starting making kind of a uh, some noise in seattle they were kind of tagged as kind of a, a, a pretty typical metal band of the time opening for bands like great white and tesla and that kind of thing in seattle when they came through town i i got the impression i i, I just doing this show listening to that music from the time you know i was 21 20 during that all that stuff happened um it seems like they benefited a lot from not hitting right away like if they would have if, if facelift would have taken off right out of the gate and then a year later Nirvana happens, I think things could have been a little bit different for them but they really started to getting traction just ahead of uh Nirvana breaking and things were starting to kind of shift there you know with man in the box I think the video yeah. came out early 91 or something like that but that was kind of when things yeah. happened and then when Nirvana did break so I don't know did, did you get that impression too kind of researching this?
1: Uh Yeah, so if I remember, like, well, before before Alice came out, remember, remember Alice was the managed of Susan silver at that point, who was also, besides dating and later marrying Chris Cornell, she was also managing Soundgarden. Right. So when Alice finished dates with, and they were about to go on that first tour, so that going, coming off of louder than love. And so that was sort of like yeah that, that first that first sort of hit I think he got a Grammy nomination it didn't get a ton of MTV play but it was really sort of a shot in the arm and that sort of set the stage for for Soundgarden when they we went to the studio to do Motorfinger.
2: yeah
1: um, so you know Seattle was, was you know the the, the you know the, the the ball was already rolling so to speak so then Allison went out. And, um, you know, the do Out of the Box video, which is the second single off the record, the first one didn't, didn't it got to play on like metal stations, but it didn't really sort of have that kind of break, break out. Die of kind of Man of the Die Young. Right.
0: So... Yeah, uh, I, I don't yeah, remember then, that as a single at all, Dave. I, I, I you know, and, and I was kind of paying attention to that, you know, so I was surprised actually reading this book and researching this record to... To to get that information because you know my you know and again um, you just talked about events that are old that's my thirty years ago brain but I really don't recall that. Yeah, I mean um, I'm not yeah. saying it's not true. I'm just like it just it clearly didn't make any movement is all.
1: I mean I had thank God for YouTube because you know all those videos were online I could dig them up and watch them you know. Yeah. Um, one of the guys one of the, one of my sources that I interviewed uh, quite extensively was Rocky Shank who was. Uh, this artist and video director who collaborated quite extensively with the band over the years. And so he directed, besides doing the artwork for their records, he directed that video for We die Young. So he told me really, some really interesting stories about that. Um, it was a house in, I want to say in Glendale. They had been, it had burned down in a fire. And so it's like the house like, you know, and there's like debris and stuff in the swimming pool, whatever. And so they, they hired this family. Like they had they hired the, the, the location from the family, the owner that owned it so they could shoot the video. And then they're like, okay, well, let's put some of this debris and stuff in the pool, you know, because there are scenes they shot in the swimming pool and things like that. And they're like, children's toys and things like that. <laughs> and, and all <laughs> they were like, oh my God, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> and so that was kind of a, you know, that was sort of a, that was sort of an interesting, uh, you know, first, I guess, first experience. And, and again, keep in mind, they weren't famous at that point. He was doing it on a shoestring budget because he liked them. Yeah. Uh, same deal with uh, the the photo shoot for their album cover. And there's a photo shoot of them. If you look at the inside liner notes of Facelift, there's a photo of them on a, like this mound of, of of yellow, like dust or dirt. It's it's sulfur. It was on a factory outside of LA or something like that. And so you know, the wind is shifting and every so often the like maybe they start crying because it's gotten in their eyes or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and Plus so a, yeah. So anyway, but that's but that photo shoot was almost was from the same and it's in it's in the in the, it's like I think it's the interior photo of, of Facelift. And uh that's uh yeah, that's that's Rocky Shank for you right there. So oh, yeah. <laughs> um but as far as but back to your original question about, you know, uh uh no matter the box being a breakout, um, yeah, I mean, I think it was the right name or the right place at the right time. I mean, I wrote about one of the chapters in there was about the meeting of the MTV executives where they decided, you know, which new video was going to get this sort of the seal of approvable, this buzz bin or whatever. Yeah, I love it. that story. Uh, the approval. And
0: uh, Do you uh, remember the other you know, artist?
1: It was a band called Blue Murder. Yeah, I think it was Jelly Roll. Before they get from yeah, either Jelly Roll or, or Valley of the
0: Kings, one of those two. I forget. Yeah. No, just and, just quick note on that: we uh, when we when we went through the face facelift record for for this sidecast, I brought that story up from your book because I I just can't imagine. I mean. It's down to those two. It seems it's almost like just ridiculous to think because, you know, I don't know if you know much about Blue Murder, but you got uh, Carmine Appice and um, John Sykes, two guys who are basically yeah, probably they or they're, First of all, they're old and they're probably already yeah. in their next bands by the time MTV is talking about this. You know, they just move around all the time. They, they don't really seem like a, the kind of band that gets in the buzz bin, but love to get that little nugget yeah. from your book.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, apparently, if you look at the video for Man in the Box, it's like so dark and so weird. It's like a black and white, sepia tone. There's this weird guy with his eyes sewn shut. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, it was just so bizarre. It's like, let's well, just, and they're like, well, let's just pick something different. <laughs> so that was really their, their, their deciding factor. I love that. You, um,
0: you have Lane's treatment for the video in the book, too. That was brilliant. Um, I, yeah, I uh, yeah, Rainy, drippy barn, yeah, well, be, farm animals, and babies with eyes shut.
1: Yeah, the baby, they decided the babies, the, Paul Rockley, the director, decided the babies with eyes shut wasn't was, was going to be doable, so they came up with the idea of having this, like, guardian, you know, this guy who, 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 who kind of looked like Jesus with his eyes shut, acted sort of like a caretaker for the animals who run the barn, so that's the, the guy you see there. And they later got that, you know, the man out of the box. Tattooed on his, on his shoulder, on his yeah. right on his right shoulder blade, if I remember correctly. So he, it was, but as far as the impact that video had on the band, it was huge. I mean, they were in the middle of a Clash of the Titans tour. They they, which is a strange story in and of itself. You know, three Clash metal bands and Alice and Chains, and uh, you know the crowd hated them at first. You know, they, did, they were, you know the Slayer fans are notorious. There's an episode where they were just throwing jugs and beer cans and everything they could throw at them. You know, I think it was at Red Rocks in Colorado, and, uh, you know, literally within a couple of weeks later, I mean, they were the biggest thing on that bill, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, life has a. Life I saw that tour. It turn taking its turn, yeah. Oh, cool. Where, where'd you go? Where'd
0: I went go? to it in Minnesota in a place called Shroud Air. It's about an hour north of uh, St. Paul. The Twin Cities there, so... Um. Yeah. Okay. They, they they killed it, man. That was actually my first time. I mean, I think I I I knew the song "Man in the Box," but I really hadn't had it and bought all in. Um. But it wouldn't yeah. be long, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. I loved the entire day. All all four bands kicked ass.
1: And then, so Man in the Box is sort of this big summer, hit of the summer. Uh, and then for the fall, they they get the they get the nod to open for Van Halen. And so right when I think in August or September '91, they get their gold record for 500,000 copies sold, which was the first of those Seattle Grunge records to to reach that mark. And that was also the same month that either Nevermind or 10
2: came
1: out. So, Needless to say, it was kind of like, they set the bar, and then those other guys cleared
0: it. And and Dave Jordan coming in to produce, there's a really good story in the book about that. The story is that Dave was arranged to meet them and see them play in LA, and it was only like Dave, Rick Rubin, and a couple other people there totally, and Rick Rubin walks out. Yeah. <laughs> what might have been? I, I, what, what might I, have been. I, I wanted to ask you, did you know if Rick was there for like to actually scout the band for his own deal, or was he just like hanging out?
1: I didn't interview Rick Rubin. My impression from what I call the Jordan, my interview with Dave Jordan, was that they were both there checking out House and Chains, because at that point, they were sort of this hot new band, and the record label, which was CBS at that time, later merged and became Columbia, but CBS was sort of shopping their their uh, their demo around to like every like hard rock and metal producer in town, mm-hmm. and I guess the, the, like Jordan and and uh, Jordan and uh, Ruben were like the only two that showed up.
0: Oh, and Rick um, that,
1: wasn't I, I, happy with I'm what, what a, he saw. <laughs> I'm not. I'm 100 sure. I'm not 100 sure of that and that's just my impression. From and again, I, I you have to ask Rick that, but. Um, yeah, what might have been. I mean, at that point, uh, Jordan, he had, you know, he'd done a whole bunch of stuff with different bands over the years, but for, for the intensive purposes of, of his work with Alice, what they were most excited about, what was most relevant, was that he had done the James Addiction of Nothing Shopping. Right. And I think they had just finished, they had just finished, uh, Ritual to Love, Ritual. So... I mean, that was the sort of point of reference because what what I was told by Ronnie Champagne, who was Dave's engineer on Facebook, was like, you know, they were all sort of, you know, they're all kids, they were all sort of curious for the first time in the studio with a budget and you know making an album, and so they're like, you know, wow, what were what they doing on this on this track? You know, what did you guys do on this? Because they were all asking about the band's vision basically.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, you bring that up in the book. That's kind of cool. Uh, it's weird because those aren't two bands that sound much alike.
1: Yeah, I thought it, I thought it was. I think it was. I mean, then you mentioned it. I may have over, you know, I may have like over dramatized it a little bit. But I think it's it's in the book. Check in the chapter on the making of Faceless. But that that, that that would be where it where sure. it is because uh, it's yeah it's it's one of those things where. I mean, nothing shocking came out in '88, and I think Ritual came out in '90, if I remember correctly. So they were sounds right like, like they had just or they had so they had just finished Ritual. They went the did Faithless, and so they had like the early mixes of Ritual, and they were and the Alice guys were listening to it. Wow, if I remember correctly, yeah.
0: You know, one thing that also kind of comes through in, in, in when, when we're talking about the recording in, is that we see a little bit. It, it's Maybe it's it's how I read it, but Mike Starr comes off a little bit more naive than than the other guys when it comes to stuff. When you tell the story about how he doesn't know how to really properly work his own bass gear, he just kind of turns the knobs up and stuff. I
1: think he was soft. Yeah, I think he was. Uh, I think he was self taught as a musician. Well, I mean, I think all of those guys were yeah. to some degree or other. Um, he he did. I mean, in terms of the pre Alice Man, I would say Faye was the one that was probably had the most. The biggest following, the biggest local success—like they won a bunch of Battle of Bands, they recorded demos, they, they they got a song on the Northwest Metal Fest compilation, um, you know. But they were—they had careerist moves, they had Cairo, they had all this stuff. So, I mean, he was a before he was doing this while he was in high school, I think, if I remember yeah. correctly. So, um, so Mike was Mike in in, in, that, in those respects. I'd say. When I was formed, he was the guy with the most hands on experience, interestingly enough. Um, I think what he didn't my, again, this is my personal impression here. But I think what he didn't know until he got in the band and until when when, you know, it became a business, for example, was how much work it was <laughs> to be in a band. You you have to actually have to rehearse, you gotta keep writing songs and I mean Michael's never. I don't think Michael's ever a song I don't. I don't know, but that was sort of an issue where, where Jerry was, you know, clearly the um, you know if this band is the Who, Jerry's Pete Thompson. and he right. he's got on almost everything, and you know when Mike learned, you know after the success of the first album that, that uh you know writing songs, that publishing money and that bigger paychecks, you know he wanted more, but he, I guess he just didn't know how to how to do it. And I think that was, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I think if there's maybe, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was, I think that might've been one of those things where a lack of formal instruction might've, might've in the long term, been, uh, been a negative. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know the full extent of his musical development, but I mean, you know, if he was self-taught, he had, he had good ear training and whatever, but, but, um,
0: yeah, well, he was I, a great I, I, player. I, I loved him as a player and a, and a performer. It just seemed like when it came to kind of the, uh, oh, the, the more of the behind-the-scenes kind of stuff is where he kind of was out of his element. You know, and, you know, did, did, isn't theres is, it's during this recording, this record, that they, they actually put duct tape over the knobs so he won't mess with them? Yeah. I mean, anybody yeah, who's been in a band, I, is had you know, at least one guy on stage who wanted to do that to? Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: I mean, I and I, I think, and I think they, they even later. They I think they even carved the uh, took a knife or something and they carved. <laughs> uh, so settings into to the amp pad, so they knew.
0: Yeah, they always, it knew what What the credit better at, yeah. Oh, so man, <laughs> it, well, Susan Silver I said mean, something uh, to the effect that that he was the hardest to rein in, like with money and stuff, right?
1: Yeah, he. I mean, remember? I think if you look at the credits for that first record, um, I think Jerry had his, his fingerprints on. Most, not all of it. Lane had a couple of writing credits for lyrics,
2: mm-hmm. but
1: otherwise, I think it was all Cantrell. I think Mike had a credit on. I think it's, it ain't like that in confusion. I think those are the two songs he had a credit on, and I don't know. So, but I know I know that when he got money, he paid. Um, he bought a car. I can't remember the model, but it's in the book. He bought a car, and he paid whatever thirty. $5,000, whatever it what was, he paid cash, um, for, for this new car. So, um, you know, I don't, and then, you know, I don't know what he, I you don't know how much other money he was getting from, you know, royalties or if he had endorsements with, uh, you know, Spectre or any other instrument company or whatever. So, but, um, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't thinking, of how do I grow this money? How do I make it last or whatever? It was, okay, I got to spend it. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean?
2: Um,
1: <laughs> Uh, now Lane on the other hand was exactly the opposite. He was very conservative in how he spent his money. Yes, he splurged on toys and video games and stuff, but but uh, you know, he got an him he to And well yeah, but, but he but, he, but <laughs> he, he didn't fall into that but he didn't fall into that trap of like, well, I'm a big rustler, I made it now. I mean Ferraris and you know mansion in, in a mansion in Bellevue. I'll throw, I mean? I, I'm going to
0: throw a joke at you once in a while, just a heads up. Yeah, I get where you're going. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, Go so. for it. The
1: story is too dark not to joke about it. Hey,
0: you know, a little side note there. Yeah, because uh, heroin comes up a lot when we're talking about grunge. I'm about halfway through the list, and there are times where it's just like, Jesus, fuck, I, I need to kind of give myself a little break, because, you know, I, I, I want to kind of keep things light and celebrate this music, but man, it, it does get dark. Um, I wanted to ask another thing about Mike Starr real quick. Uh, now, legend has it, and you do touch on on it in the book. I'm just curious if this this is one of those stories where you openly admit you're not exactly sure how true it is. Um, I'm just curious what level of corroboration you might have got that Mike Starr actually dropped Andrew Wood off at what would be his last drug buy and an eventual overdose. I hope I'm not yeah,
1: that, saying that that, wrong. what. Cool. That's what he that's what he told you know, that's what he told uh Mark Yarn, who's the author of Everything Loves Our Town, and if you read that book. Yep. Um, that's where I got that quote. And uh, you know, again, how do you prove a negative, right? That something didn't happen. <laughs> I mean oh, Am yeah. I gonna go yes, I, my star, okay, he dropped it off, whatever. I mean, I I I, I couldn't that's one of those things where I couldn't prove or disprove it, you know what I mean? And it's like sometimes I can and other times you just sort of just have to take it with a grain of salt. That's one of those things where we
0: may never know. So so it's strictly from there and nothing else. Uh, I'm and yeah. I'm sorry. I don't remember exactly when Mike died or, or or specifically when you started this. When you started the book, would, would he he have still been alive or would he've already passed? No,
1: he died like he died look, I started the book in like September of 2011
0: and he died like six months
1: earlier. Okay. All right. Uh, so I, I had like I had like I had like, no, yeah, missed him. Missed
0: him back from, um Well, there is a a huge ripple effect that that because uh, things really hadn't kind of grown to where it eventually would I, I don't think it was nationally known at least I can tell you from my perspective being in Minnesota we it wasn't but but you, you get it you do a great job of tying it all together in the book when we talk about what what Andrew Wood's death actually did and it and it, it really didn't have the effect it, it it probably should have which would have been a bit, a bit of a wake up call it was more like the first domino and it took a while until people started taking it a little more seriously, it seems like. I'm talking about, of course, overdosing, that kind of deal.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and it wasn't just Allison chains either. I mean, it was a yeah. whole, it was, um, you know, he died of, a, you know, I think Mark Arm from Mudhoney also dabbled in it. Um, Shannon Hoon from from uh, Blood Mellon. Um, I
0: mean, who else? Uh, Lanigan from uh, Screaming Trees. Lanigan Screaming Trees, yeah, yeah. His book yeah. has some really dark, very open and honest uh, uh, stories of abuse. I haven't
1: yeah. read it. I have read it yet. I haven't read it yet, but I, yeah, I've heard it. it's maybe too honest. <laughs>
0: yeah, possibly. But, uh,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the thing. Yeah, the thing about Andy Andrew's death is like he sort of, you know, he became sort of the Sid Barrett of Seattle in the sense that you know it's like you know, you know, Pink Floyd used you know the loss of Sid, and his you know breakdown and everything. As to, to inspire their work, you know, all the, all the many songs did they write about Sid and, you know, the, uh, the whole Issue Were Here album, obviously. And so, you know, boom, there you go, Alf, James Cook, so with Wood, and then Camo Box is far behind, and then, you know, Cornell, yeah. you know, starts to spread new songs and become Temple of a Dog, and yada, yada, yada. You know, it's, um, you know, he's one of those sort of larger than life figures, and, you know, you can't help but wonder what might have been.
0: Yeah, and, and I love Mother Love Bone, but I, I, I just didn't see, like when I listened to it, which was posthumous, it doesn't come across as this thing that, that has that mass appeal that these other bands did. Now, who knows what would have happened. I, I I might feel differently if, if they had a chance to break, but um, man.
1: And Eddie Vedder would still be pumping gas in San Diego. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> no kidding. Yeah.
1: So we got one of those great, you know, what if those great cosmic questions that you will never know what might have, what what, what everyone might have done.
0: No doubt, um, Here's man.
1: another great, one. here's another great, like, what if, if you ever read Duff McKagan's memoir, you know, he, he left Seattle, he came up with the Seattle's pug theme, you know, he played, he was the Metropolis or whatever, and I think in 1985, or whatever, he leaves for LA, and then he, you know, starts guns and roses, right? And so, it's funny, so Duff takes off and then Grunch takes off a couple of years later, but he—he he, he remember him staying or writing somewhere. that He always wondered what might have been if he had stayed. Like maybe he would have wound up in Soundgarden. You know, he wondered that. No like, I wonder. Think about that. What might have, what might have been. You know, so it's, um, yeah. It was so a very it, 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 uh, tight wanna... community
0: there. I mean, as I every every record I go forward, there's like a half a dozen names that come up constantly on this list, you know, people that have worked, yeah. you know. I mean, like you mentioned, Susan Silver managing some of these bands, Jack and Dino produced a bunch of the artists on this list, you know, Sub Pop mm-hmm. Records was, of course, involved in a lot of the CZ records. There's just so many layers to these things where, you know, I mean, the. The uh, Matt Cameron was has been in about ten of these bands. You know?
1: Yeah, 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 and uh, yeah. It it's a, it was a very small circle, just a bunch of you know a bunch of people who were playing music for themselves and their friends, and you know. And I think if you look at those early grunge records, those you know, from say like '85 to like up until up to and I didn't, I didn't even include Nevermind in that list. There is. An innocence and I think an integrity to all those records just because it was, there were no expectations of, of fame or success or fortune or whatever. They were doing it for themselves. It was what they liked. It was what their audience liked. Um, you know, and it was, it was just some it was sort of just, you know, developed very organically and very far away from the corrupting influence of the industry. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so by the time that the, you know, these guys are all going supernova, right? They you know you know, boom, never if you look at that that timeline right there, and you look at you know, facelift, uh, you know, uh, nevermind, 10, bad motor finger, dirt, um, you know, you, you just you like it's like they're boom, 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 they're cranking out one after the other and you add you know, you know, smashing pumpkins and Hole and all these other sort yeah. of grunge or grunge grunge contemporary bands. Stone Temple Pilots. And it's just and... like, you're just like, wow. <laughs> you know, there's just this, it just seems like every other, every like six weeks or something, somebody was dropping a masterpiece, you know what I mean? And But especially for that actual Seattle community, yeah. that little tight-knit thing. And then, you know, I guess, you know, once once that cat got out of the bag, I mean, you know, well, the, the the best analogy I've heard how explained that was it was like sort of like California after the Gold Rush. You know, <clears throat> everybody was coming over, everybody's coming <laughs> to Seattle. Then it then it's the it. music <laughs>
0: industry at that point. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, the other thing too about all that is that, like, they would actually do like collaborative side projects that were good. You know what I mean? Like Mad Season and Temple of the Dog. It's just, and it just seemed like the 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 reason for doing all these things was effortless and, and pure. It wasn't like about some kind of commercialization. Yeah. Of course, I'm being a little probably I don't know Pollyannic about that, but.
1: Well, the well, Temple of the Dog for sure. I mean, like I said, it was meant to be a tribute to Andy Wood and it didn't sound like Soundgarden, and so... And that you know, had a, a, because, a...
0: That was a slow grow, too. That was out quite a bit before Hunger Strike hit.
1: Well, yeah, because at that point, protein and Soundgarden had blown up, and then, like, the label realized, holy shit, I got this record, we got this record, and, like, the Soundgarden guys and the cold got guys together. Let's talking shit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and there you go. So yeah, it was like one of those things where it had this little diamond in the rough, and they didn't realize it until, you know, a year later. And, um... And, but, but as far as Matt Deason goes, I mean, remember, that started with uh, McCready in rehab in Minnesota <laughs> where he meets Baker Saunders. And, you know, he comes up with this idea and he wants to, you know, sort of lead by example and, you know, being sober and whatever. And he wants to help Wayne get sober, you know what I mean? So it started with, I wouldn't say the it started with good intentions, but it certainly wasn't innocent intentions in that respect, you know what I mean? Right. So they were, yeah. yeah.
0: Because it, yeah, it seems are, clear uh, that uh, Lane needed help pretty early on in the recording and the fact that they kind of plowed through it. I guess you got a pretty good point there.
1: I don't know. I mean, my, my personal view on Lane's use is I think that right, he had he had over, you know, since he was like a teenager until, you know, until he was an adult, he was pretty, I guess, strong tolerance for stuff, like alcohol or drugs or whatever, and he just didn't bathe him, didn't affect him, whatever. And then... I would never leave him. Once he tried heroin,
0: I was it. And you mentioned that the the Van Halen tour in in ninety one, there the, at the end of the facelift cycle, uh, that supposedly was when uh, what's her name? Is it Demery? Is that how you pronounce it? Demery, Demery, Demery. So that's uh, when she would have uh, supposedly the first time she you know had Lane try heroin. I don't. I don't I'm not phrasing yeah. that right. I'm not trying to blame somebody, but she was like the uh, the conduit to his first exposure. I
1: guess. Yeah. Yeah, but it's yeah. I mean, that's that's the that's how I, that story came from Johnny Bacolas, who was in addition to being in Link's previous band, he was in the Grand Band, yeah, sleeve, mouthing, chains. He was also his roommate at the time of the the Mad Season record. So they lived together for about a year, fifteen months, give or take. Yeah. And so. You know, they, they had been friends since they were teenagers, right? So they were like 15, 16, right? And so, you know, when they were living together, he asked them, you know, you know, how did you how did you, how did you start? How did you get started on this? And, and that's the story that Lane told him. And, you know, the fact that, you know, it was in that particular context, it was one of his closest childhood friends, and it was a private conversation between the two of them that would incline me to, to think that he was telling the truth. Wow. So. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, and again, I don't think, and as far as the blanket, I addressed that in the book right there. I mean, you know, Ben Lane was no saying. I mean, he...
0: Right. That's kind uh, of what I was trying to say, is it?
1: Drug, he had a, you know, he had a, he had a, you know, he had been battling drugs for years. I mean, he other, you know, the stuff that I was able to find was, you know, marijuana, cocaine, acid, and... I think probably mushrooms, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. That's just the stuff that we knew about. Um, you know, and the other thing to keep in mind also is that when he was still at the music bank, in at some point in 1988, uh, one of the other musicians there, um, offered him and another guy heroin and they both turned him down. Okay. So, I mean, it was a, it was an interesting, and I asked him that, that story was known to other people who worked at the music bank or who were around that team at the time. And so, you know, for for whatever reason, in 1988, despite you know having, you know, dabbled in other drugs, you know, Lane knew that he was going to draw the line at heroin. It's like, nope, I'm not going to try it. And then three years later, for whatever reason, he tries it, and I, I never, I have not been able to determine why he changed his mind, why he decided to do it. Um, but um. The other thing I would say as well is that even if it hadn't, if it hadn't been Demery, you know, this was, you know, there's no way to prove this. This is pure speculation. This is a pure what if. But you know, it, my 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 personal view is that if Ling, if Demery hadn't introduced him to it at that point, it would have been somebody else. You know, it was yeah, just okay. there, and it was endemic to the scene. You know, it could have been, you know, anybody from another band. It could have been, you know, a mutual dealer. Who knows? But it, it just you know and there
0: might I be the reason that later, uh, that he, he eventually tried it years later even though he once thought that's just the one taboo is that it it was just becoming too too common in the scene that he was in you know
1: possibly i mean you you remember that you know dummy had a, a she was sort of seeing a guy while Lane was on tour this is another musician who was also who was also a heroin uh
0: yeah addict. what was his name i'm sorry that comes up in the book too so his guy's name is
1: Dwayne Lance Budenheimer.
0: And he, and he was in a local band still at the time, and he was just kind of, uh, I don't know, grinding on Demery when Lane was on the road.
1: <laughs> I guess so. I mean, I mean keep, keep in mind, Lane was having his speech fun as well. Yeah, of like, course, yeah. You know, he had much, much moral ground to, to claim in that argument either. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, they, he denied it, but Lane heard enough. And so what happened was at the, at the, at the single shoot in, I guess in the spring of 91, um, you know, Alison Payne is holding their scene. Um, the Cameron Curse people have built a, a, mixture stage at the, by the pier. It's not an actual club, it's just something that they built just for the movie and that okay. took it down. And so when they were shooting that scene, and it was like an all night shoot or something, you know, just doing cake after cake after cake. And so Bodenheimer was there, and I'm looking at my book right now. And so, you know, they, you know, Lane said Bodenheimer, and then he sort of just uh, confronted him, and, you know, he just, you know, man just let him have it, you know, and he said, and I'm quote, and this is the quote I have in my book, I'm reading it right now. "Quote: You're a piece of shit. It should have been you that died instead of Andy Wood. I fucking hate you." Nice. Now, obviously, <laughs> at that point, he knew that Bonheimer was used Harold User. Um, it was like a year after Andy Wood had died. Obviously, he hadn't dabbled it yet because, obviously, he he you know he felt like he had some sort of moral, I don't know, authority or something to <laughs> to. Um,
0: well, he's anger yeah, in like, lashing out, you know, I think he's it's probably you know. and, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so and Bonheiro what he told me was Lane said it to me and that was very hurtful. It hurt me. It wasn't like a total dick. I did have feelings. I felt <laughs> bad about what was going on, but I couldn't help it because I truly I really did love her. So I mean, it's so for whatever reason, at some point, you know, even you know, a couple of months before that Van Halen tour, I mean he's actually, you know, he's Talking pretty high and mighty to this guy about her, his heroin problem, and then he tries it Oh, himself. I got you. So, so I mean, why he decided to try it after all of that? I have no idea. I, I really appreciate
0: you now. tying in that timeline there from that argument to the the Van Halen thing. Um,
1: yeah, this was March. This was March of ninety one. That yeah. shoot, and the Van Halen tour was like August. Right, so like five months later.
0: I was surprised reading your book that Andrew Wood actually lived for a little bit after his OD and all these people like uh, Chris Cornell came back to, to see him in the hospital. Um, man, just, that is yeah. a heartbreaking, I don't know, a couple pages in the book.
1: Yeah, that was, I put together that account from a couple of other grudge books. So it was like the Pearl Jam 20 book. It was Mark Yarm, Greg Prado's history of history of the grudge scene. And then there's a great documentary about Andrew Wood called Malfunction. Ah, I Andy Loved was it. mean, Scott Barber, yeah. So that's, I kind of sort of put it together from all those accounts, right? So, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess he was, he wasn't, he was alive in the sense that he had a pulse or whatever, but I don't think he was conscious. I mean, he was even, he was on a metal, he was, he was on tubes, I mean, even even in a medical reduced coma, if I'm correctly. Right. So, I mean, um, and I guess at, at a certain point they just decided that it, that it was just too much and, and, you know, the best thing to do would have been to pull the plug and that's ultimately what happened. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, you know, just a, just a sad thing. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like being in that hospital. That's, that's, that's drug overdose, you know? that's, that's yeah.